Amen. Well, good morning, church. I hope you're doing well uh, today. If you don't know me, my name's Billy. I get the privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. It's a huge honor for me to serve you in that way. If you have your Bible, I want you to go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, not too hard to find, uh, first book of the Bible, so just open the front cover. You should find Genesis pretty quickly. Chapter 2, we'll start in verse 18, but if you've been here, you know uh, we've been walking through a series on God's design for the family, and so we started uh, with God's design for men, and then we moved to God's design for women, and then last week we talked about God's design for the family, uh, and today we're going to finish up talking about God's design for uh, marriage. And so I pray and hope that this series has been fruitful for you. I know for me it's been very encouraging, and um, God's been working and doing some incredible, incredible things. I believe God wants to use the family unit uh, for His glory in a very powerful way. And for us in a culture that doesn't value that or doesn't align to that, we must be different and we must be willing to stand out and, and go against the grain and honor God uh, in this area. But before I jump into marriage today, I do want to take a chance and an opportunity to talk to uh, my single people in the room uh, today. I know you guys have been sitting through uh, these past two messages on marriage and on family, and sometimes it can just feel like uh, it doesn't apply to you or that, uh, you know, it's just a reminder that you're alone and there's families in here. Uh, I just want to encourage you this morning. I really want to comfort you and, and to challenge you. Uh, because Scripture has a lot to say about you and where you are. And so the first thing is I want to comfort you. I want you to know that God loves you. He has not forgotten about you. Uh, you're not a second-class citizen uh, in the kingdom of God. I want you to remember this. Marriage is not the highest calling in this life. Following Jesus is the highest calling in this life. And you need to remember that, and you need to understand that. And Paul says in Corinthians uh, that... Uh, singleness is actually a gift, which is what I want to challenge you with. It is a gift. And he says, it is a gift to be stewarded uh, to live your life in undivided devotion to God. Uh, I, it, an easy way to think about this is two of the greatest Christians uh, in the Bible are Jesus and Paul. What do those two people have in common? They were both single, and they both were used by God in a very, very powerful way way. And so whatever you do, do not idolize marriage. The church for so long has idolized marriage. And marriage is not meant to satisfy you. Um, only God can do that. You know, it's why we see all, so often uh, lonely, uh, insecure, single people get married and become lonely, insecure, married people. Because they idolize marriage and they look to it to give them something that only God can. And so I pray this morning, if you're in this room and you're single or divorced or you find yourself uh, not married in the room, uh, that you would understand that Christ is enough and he is enough and I want you to, to know that. And I want you to see today's teaching as not an opportunity to zone out, but an opportunity to learn God's design in and with uh, his plans for you become uh, marriage. And so uh, to the married folks, I want to give you guys three things this morning. And I want to do it in a couple different passages. Uh, the first is I want to show you God's design for marriage uh, in Genesis chapter 2. And then I want to show you how sin has affected God's design for marriage in Genesis chapter 3. And then I want to jump to Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to look at the gospel-centered marriage. How does that play out? How do we practically walk in God's uh, design? And so let's jump in. Genesis chapter 2, we'll start in verse 18. 
and it reads this way. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone, so I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. And then Adam and Eve, or Adam and his wife, were both naked and they felt no shame. So here we've read this passage before, but we see God gives his divine order for the family. We see one man, we see one woman. We see both of them saved in a relationship with God in the garden. And then we see God bring the woman to the man in covenant marriage, right? So a covenant is not a contract. It is a lifelong commitment, right? It's a commitment to love and serve uh, one another. That's what it means when he says a man shall leave his father and mother and be united or cleaved to his wife. That's covenant language meant to commit for a lifetime. And so, and then we see after that, Uh, then they'll begin to have children, and then they'll begin to populate and be fruitful and to spread God's glory through the image uh, bearing of themselves into the world. And so we see God's design. Now, I understand there are people in this room where your story and this story don't match, right? And it's easy to say, well, uh, I guess I've already messed it up, so where do I go from here? Well, I want you to understand, just because you may have messed it up or gotten it out of order or not been saved when you started, doesn't mean that God doesn't have a word for you. God wants you to walk in this design in the best way that you possibly uh, can. And so I want to give you a couple things. The first is this, letter A, marriage is instituted by God. It was his idea, he created it, he's the designer of it. Right? This is why it makes so much sense to look to God's Word, to God, to understand how marriage actually works. It'd be the same thing with your iPhone. Where's the best place to go to see how your iPhone works? Well, go to the people who created it at Apple. It's the same thing. God created marriage. We must look to Him. And we see here that God created marriage as a gift. It is a gift to be enjoyed. He said it was not good that Adam was alone. So he gave him Eve. Proverbs 18.22 says that he who finds a wife or she who finds a uh, husband finds a good thing. And so we see marriage done God's way is a gift, right? It's a gift to be enjoyed. Not only that, we see that it was created to reflect his covenant love. When the Bible speaks about marriage, it uses covenant Language. A man should leave his father and mother, that means break away, and cleave to his wife or be united to uh, his wife. It's why Jesus would go on to say in Mark 10, 9, what God joins together, let not man separate. Because when two people get married, something special happens, a miracle happens 
<clears throat> where they are united to one another by God. Marriage is a lifelong commitment. In marriage, we commit to love and to serve and to cherish our spouse in a way that reflects Christ to them and to the world for the rest of our life. This is why divorce is such a big deal to God, because to divorce is to break covenant and misrepresent God, God's love for us, because that's the whole purpose of marriage, is to reveal God's love. Now, I understand there's special circumstances, and many people in this room have been divorced. I'm not saying that to condemn you. I just want you to know this is what God's Word says about marriage. The sanctity of marriage is a serious business to God. However, our culture doesn't believe this way. It's moved completely away from this. Divorce rates uh, right now hover around 50% outside the church and inside the church. So it's not just the culture that's lost the sanctity of marriage. It is the church as well. Our culture is full of broken promises and failed contracts. But God has designed the marriage relationship and the marriage covenant to be different. It's not to be based on feelings. Feelings are wishy-washy. They come and they go. It's not to be based on circumstances. Circumstances change like uh, the weather. It's not a contract. It's not a, hey, I'm going to marry you, and if you do this, then I'm going to do this in return, but if you don't do this, I'm out. That's not the covenant of marriage. It's a covenant before God to commit yourself to unconditionally love and serve another person until death do you part. That's why it's so important that we marry a Christian, right? Because this covenant is different between a lost person and a saved person. So that's the first thing we see. It was instituted by God. Secondly, the purpose of marriage is clear, to extend God's glory, right? It's the same purpose that we see for men and women, right? Man was created to bear God's image into the world. Woman was designed to help man and to bear God's image into uh, the world. And so marriage is the same goal. It's to uh, better uh, bear God's image into the world. Marriage is not eternal. We need to understand that. It will not be in heaven. So that means what? It's missional. It's missional. It's a part of the mission of God to spread his glory to the ends of the earth. And once he comes back, there will be no need to do that uh, anymore. It was created to multiply his image. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with his glory. That's the purpose of marriage. So here's an honest question. How many people in this room actually got married with God's glory in mind? Most of us did not, right? Most of us were looking and our motivations were companionship. We're looking for somebody that we can be friends with for the rest of our life. That's not bad, but it's not our primary means. Some of us were just looking for sexual relationship, right? We uh, were burning with that and we're ready to get married. So we found somebody pretty and did it, right? And so um, other, others just wanted a family, right? Everybody else has got a family that's my age. I want a family, so let's get married because uh, he looks like he have great kids, right? So let's have great kids together. And they wanted a family so that they could keep up with uh, the culture. And none of these, again, are bad reasons. They're just not the number one reason to get married. The number one reason to get married is to extend God's glory. And if you can't do that with the person that you're dating right now, it's time to break up and move on. Because that's God's purpose for dating. God doesn't want you to idolize marriage, to look to it to give you something that it was never designed to give you. There was a movie when I was growing up called Jerry Maguire. How many of you guys have seen that? 
Well, the most climactic scene in that whole story is, he's, uh, is, is a, a man and a woman looking at each other and said, uh, you complete me. And it's the biggest lie in all of the world. All right? God did not design a female or a male in this world to complete you. If he did, somebody would have screwed it up from the beginning of time, right? Because they would have married the wrong person, and then that would have been your person, and then you exponentially uh, make that effect. It doesn't work that way. There is no perfect person. We are sinners, right? Sinful husband, sinful wife, not a perfect match ever, right? That's how it works. You never marry the right person. You only marry a person that's going to help you grow and become more like Jesus. Only God can complete us, not a spouse. We don't need to idolize marriage. We need to have God's perspective of marriage. Marriage is about the mission. That's why it won't be in heaven. There is no marriage in heaven. Marriage is about sanctification. It's about growing, learning to love another person even when they seem unlovable. God is way more concerned with our holiness than he is our happiness. And if we got married to be happy, then we're going to find it doesn't deliver that all the time, right? There are seasons of happiness and joy, but many times it's difficult. And when we're not happy, it's not an excuse to not love and to not sacrifice for one another. The quicker we gain God's perspective in marriage, the more fulfilled we're actually going to be in marriage. And so the purpose of marriage is to extend God's glory. That's important. Thirdly, your spouse is a helper, is your helper, right? That's an important word we've talked about multiple times during this series. Meaning, God believes that we all need help when it comes to fulfilling his plan for our life, right? And that help can come in, in, the, in the person of a spouse or it can come in a church community, right? And so maybe you're in here and you don't want to get married. That's fine. You can find help in the church family. This is what community is all about. Our spiritual growth is a community project. All right, it is a community project. You are not meant to grow all alone. You're not meant to grow in isolation because we all have spiritual blinders. There's sin in you right now that you don't see. There's sin in me right now that I don't see. You know who the best people are to see that sin? The people that are closest to us. But we got to trust them as a helper sent from God to help us become more like Christ because that's what biblical community and that's what biblical marriage is all about. This is uh, Paul David Tripp makes an incredible statement. He says, your spouse is God's instrument of grace in your life. Think about that. Their purpose is to help in God's process of sanctification, which is it's a big word that means you're becoming more like Christ in your life. This is why God calls Eve a suitable helper. I believe he could call Adam or Eve a suitable helper. He's given us each other to complement one another. Remember, collaboration is the goal. That's what it means to be a suitable helper, a collaboration. It's a partnership in the gospel. That's what marriage is, a collaboration, a partnership in the gospel. It's why God created the woman from the man's rib. Where's your rib? On your side. A woman should be on the side of a man in collaboration, facing God, not facing each other, not facing outward, but facing uh, each other and the mission that God has placed before us, to collaborate together for a specific purpose, to complete the mission of God and become more like Jesus. That's what we're collaborating together to do. This means God didn't just give us a sex mate or a best friend 
or just an emotional shoulder to cry on, though we may get that in a spouse. He gave us a helper to multiply God's glory to the ends of the earth. Like that's primary, the primary means of what he gave us. And so I know that's difficult for some of us to understand, but that's what he did. And so here's my question. God's design for marriage. Is this your view of marriage? Right? Many of us in this room, we've got all kinds of views of marriage. Right? They come from our families. They come from churches that we've been a part of. But does your view of marriage come from the Bible? Like, is it in God's Word? It is very, very important that we understand marriage from God's perspective. Because if not, we are going to put pressures on it that it's not meant to carry, or we're going to begin to walk in it in ways that it were not meant to walk in. When we have God's view of marriage, it is a foundational principle. This is why every couple at our church that goes through premarital counseling, the first session we talk about the foundation of marriage is God's design for marriage. It's so important that we begin to do that. To, to do that. And think about a house or a building. What happens if a house or a building is built and the foundation is wrong? The whole thing is jacked up, right? It's the same thing with marriage. If we don't have the, the right blueprint for our marriage and we don't have the right foundation, which is God's design, God's purpose, God's reason for uh, God's view and perspective of marriage, we will have a lot of issues when it comes to marriage. So that's God's design. Number two, sin's effect on marriage, right? So we see in the chapter right after this, sin enters into the world. And I want to read that to you in Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 20. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. All right. Classic 101 problem in marriage. Blame the woman or blame the spouse, right? We see it all the way from the beginning, blame shifting. But then listen, the man said, uh, he goes on to say, uh, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So comes to Adam. Adam says, it's her fault, goes to her, she says, it's the snake's fault, right? So classic one-on-one -on -one blame shifting. That is one of the biggest effects of the fall. How good are we at blame shifting? Every marriage counseling I've ever done, hey, tell me what's going on. Well, he's doing this. Hey, tell me from your side what's going on. Well, she's doing this, right? Every time that is the issue. We're going to talk about that. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he, that's Jesus, will crush the head of the serpent and you will strike his heel. That's what he did on the cross. That's a whole nother sermon. I can't preach it right now. 16, to the woman he said, 
I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. And all the women said, amen. You guys have experienced that. That's part of the curse. Could you imagine giving birth to a child and it not hurting? That's what would have happened in the garden. That's kind of cool, right? Um, anyway, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you, right? So that's another uh, effect of the curse is that uh, that scripture kind of means that instead of it being a collaboration, now there'll be some broken collaboration. There'll be more of a competition, more of a working against one another instead of working for one another. So if Christ is not in your marriage, what happens is there's a ton of conflict because uh, there's this, this unhealthy desire to rule over one another. So Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and our fruit and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, and since from it you were taken, from dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. And so part of the curse experienced by men is that now our labor and our work is no longer enjoyable. Uh, we naturally kind of become lazy. We become passive, as Adam did here. We become selfish in those things. And so it's more difficult for us to serve and to work and to work at things, right? And so we see that as a part of the fall. So what do we see? Well, very just broadly, sin messes up everything, right? We could go through the whole Bible and show the effect of sin on the world, but it messes up everything, including marriage. And a couple things I want you to know. Because of sin, conflict is inevitable in marriage, right? The married couple that looks at you and says, yeah, we never argue, or we never fight, or we never have conflict, is a married couple that's lying to you, or either they've just kind of started living two separate lives. The person, uh, if you are trying to live for God unified, there will be conflict that happens because sin in us is selfishness. That's how it plays out. And I don't know if you figured this out yet, but selfishness and relationships never go well together. They always rub against each other. They always cause problems in relationships. Two selfish people under one roof trying to parent together, love each other, it is a, literally a recipe for disaster. There's lots of conflict when it comes to marriage. Conflict resolution is another thing that's important to figure out how to do. Think about it. Paul David Tripp says it this way. A broken man marries a broken woman in a broken world. Are you encouraged yet? Right? It's, it's that idea. I mean, there is so much brokenness in each of us and in the world that marriage is just a very, very difficult, difficult thing. But Pastor James, James, the book of James in the Bible, gives us more insight into these conflicts. And I want you to listen to James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, and look how they're the opposite of what Adam and Eve were doing. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet. But you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Because when you ask God, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your 
pleasures. So if you're married and you're experiencing conflict, Pastor James says there's a good chance that there's some sin in the mix in both uh, parties. I want you to write this down. The biggest problem in your marriage is you. And the biggest problem in my marriage is me. And it's very, very important that we understand this, right? This is why James says we always need to look inward first. Our initial reaction every time a conflict comes up in marriage is going to be to blame shift, right? Some people blame God. Some people blame each other. Some people blame Satan. Uh, there's tons of things. Sometimes they are blameworthy, but most of the time uh, it's us that needs to look internal uh, to see. Conflict is inevitable. James says to look inward. And what is the sin in you? That's what you can control. Let's focus on that first. One of my favorite quotes from a pastor uh, that, that taught us a little bit about counseling was he said this, the first thing you do when you bring a couple in for marriage counseling is you tell them, hey, let's get one thing straight. You're both wrong. Right off the top, right? Because he knows the first thing that's going to happen is justifying and blame shifting, right? So it's very important that we approach marriage issues with humility as if we are the problem because most of the times it takes two to tango and there's selfishness in both of us. So because of sin, uh, that's the first. The second is because of sin, role reversal is common. What do I mean by role reversal? Let me explain. So here's what I mean. The curse of sin fights directly against God's design for our life. When God, what God wants for you as a man or a woman, a husband or a wife, sin wants the opposite. And sin is at work in you. So think about it. What was God's design for men that we studied the first week of this series? Men are supposed to be leaders. They're supposed to be the head of the relationship. They're supposed to be characterized by sacrifice and love and service. And then what do we see in the life of Adam? The opposite of that, right? What sin begins to do is the opposite of what God has called us to do. What we see in the garden is passivity and selfishness, and that's what sin produces in our life. So men, husbands, listen to me. Here's the question. Are you being passive and selfish? Sometimes it's not that you're doing anything, it's what you're not doing that's the problem. That's what passivity means. Let me define them for you. Passivity is this, not taking responsibility and ownership of God's call on your life to lead your family. That's what passivity means. That's what Adam was doing when the serpent came and led his wife astray. Secondly, selfishness. Selfishness means that you consistently put your wants and your needs ahead of your families. You consistently do not count her and your family more significant than yourself. You just live you. You do you and do what you want to do. That's the effect of sin in our lives. So here's my honest question that I want husbands to ask. If your wife could describe you right now, would the words that come to her mind be the following? Spiritual leader, sacrificial servant, and unconditional love. Those are the three words that God says the man should be characterized by. That's what it means to lead, is we lead in spiritual things, we sacrifice, we serve and we love unconditionally, and we model Christ as we do that. If she does not describe you in those three words, then very kindly, 
And on behalf of God, I'm telling you, there's a good chance that there's sin in your heart and you're not walking in God's design for your life as a husband. Now let me move to the women. On the opposite side, what's God's design for women? Well, we saw he designed them as a suitable helper. And we talked about this word as a suitable helper, meaning a collaborator, right? Someone who collaborates with man to move towards uh, God's design for marriage. It means the woman was created as a helper to help the spouse, help the man and the family move towards God and bear his image into the world. So let me ask you, what's the opposite of a suitable helper? Well, I'll give you a couple. The opposite of a suitable helper would be a person who's not helpful. A person that is selfish, that's in it for themselves. A person that tears down the man. A person that is worried about being individualistic. Or a person uh, that, that, that works against God's design, that tries to usurp God's design. And he's stupid. He can't lead. I'm smarter than him. I need to do this. He don't know how to do anything, which is what every TV show in America does to the marriage relationship. It's a person that causes chaos and problems instead of brings peace and brings uh, just peace to the home. And so women, here's my question. Are you a helper or are you hurting the situation, right? Tony Evans would say, are you a crown or are you, are you not, right? Are you thorns? Are you a cancer? Are you a crown or are you a cancer. If your husband could describe you right now, would the words out of his mouth be helpful, submissive, encouraging, a peacemaker, a homemaker? Is that what he would come out of his mouth? If that's not the words that would come out of his mouth, then I'm telling you, on behalf of God, you're not walking in God's design for you. Are you helping? Are you, are you walking in his design? So role reversal. Thirdly, because of sin, a healthy marriage is going to require work, right? Many of us, when we think of marriage, we think of a place where we can just come and it's restful, right? It's a place of rest. I just want to relax and just do me. Why is she always wanting me to do this? Or why is he always wanting me to do this? I just want to relax. Well, because of sin, marriage actually requires work because we have to fight against sin. It requires us to fight sin daily. It requires us uh, to unconditionally love and serve our spouse. It, re it requires us to forgive. Sometimes we're forgiving them. Sometimes they're forgiving us. It requires admitting that we're wrong and repenting of things in our life. It requires giving our spouse grace even when they don't deserve it. It requires self-control and being willing to stop before you say something that's not building them up and it requires you to tame the tongue because once you say it, it's out there, right, in, in good ways and bad ways. It requires letting the past go and not keeping a record of wrongs. It requires putting your spouse's needs above your own. It requires loving them like Christ loves them. None of those things are easy, especially when sin is at work in our lives because sin is working directly against that. Sin is, hey... Do what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it. Don't worry about them. Don't care about others. That's what it does in our life. And quite honestly, we cannot be who God's called us to be without Christ at work in our life and without the Spirit of God doing a work 
in our lives. And here's the crazy thing. God knows this, and in his sovereignty, he designed marriage to help us realize that. Amen? If you're in here and you're like, Billy, I can't do that. Like, there's no way. You don't know what she's done, or you don't know what he's done, or you don't know what he's doing. And I tell you, God's designed marriage so that it pushes you to press into God to be who he has called you to be. And my greatest advice for you today is to allow sin and allow your marriage issues to push you towards God and not away from him. If you want to have a healthy marriage, that's what you're going to have to do. Press into Christ. You can't fix horizontal relationship without first fixing your vertical relationship with God. He designed it that way on purpose. He's sovereign over that. So here's my question. Write this down. What does the health of your earthly marriage reveal about the health of your relationship with God? Because if you want to know how healthy you are spiritually, your, your marriage will be a great revelation of that in your relationship with God. So that's number two, how does sin affect marriage? Number three is I want to show you the gospel-centered marriage. And I want to do that in about 15, 10, 15 minutes here. So Ephesians 5, verses 19 through 33. This is probably the passage that most of you guys have heard when it comes to marriage in the Bible. This is Paul teaching what it means to have a marriage that glorifies God. Listen, verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Paul says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what God's will is. Do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Somebody say, filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Most people leave that out in marriage sermons. They should include it. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence, for Christ. You want a healthy marriage? We have to submit to Christ. Then he goes into the roles. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ Love the church. Notice he doesn't say lead, love, agape, love, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed it and care for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of Christ's body. For this reason, a man should leave his father and mother and cleave or be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Somebody say Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. 
So here, Paul, we see this is a very important teaching. So when we go through in the first session of premarital counseling, uh, Paul gives us five characteristics here of the gospel-centered marriage, the marriage that displays the gospel, that fulfills the purpose in which God intends for it uh, to fulfill. Uh, the first characteristic is spirit-filled. Somebody say spirit-filled. Notice, before Paul ever talks about marriage, he commands us to something. He commands us to be filled with the Spirit. This is the greatest marriage advice that Paul has. Because the biggest problem in your marriage is not marriage, it is sin. And the only solution to our sin problem is the Spirit of God being at work in our lives. So Paul comes back and he says, don't be drunk with wine. Think about it. What does drunkenness do? Wine controls us. He says, be filled with the Spirit because he wants the Spirit of God to be in control of our life. Be being filled is the actual language there, meaning that be, we're filled one time at, at salvation when we get the Holy Spirit, but there's a continual filling of the Holy Spirit that makes us more and more like Christ. It's a continuous thing that Paul is wanting for us. Simply put, the secret to a healthy and biblical marriage is the Holy Spirit. Not to mention that, the secret to the Christian life is the Holy Spirit. He's the power of God at work in our lives. He is what we need more than anything else. If you aren't filled with the Spirit, nothing in marriage will work the way it's supposed to work. You will not be able to do any of the things that God is about to ask you uh, to do. A lot of people desire a healthy marriage, but they don't want to walk by the Holy Spirit. And you can't do that. Right? To walk by the Holy Spirit means that you surrender yourself to God. Right? So many people, wanna, they want a healthy marriage. They don't want to surrender, which therein lies the issue. A healthy marriage is on the other side of you surrendering to God. Secondly, we got to embrace God's purpose. That's the second characteristic of a gospel-centered marriage. We embrace God's purpose. There is a divine purpose for marriage. I ask you to repeat it. A picture. Christ and the church, right? This is what God's trying to do in our marriage. He wants us to love and serve one another in such a way that it puts his relationship with his church on display for the world, right? That's the primary purpose that Paul gives us for marriage is that we show the world how much God loves and serves the church and we show the world how much the church respects and submits to Christ, which leads to flourishing for both, both parties. That's what Paul is interested in there. And that sounds great, right? But here's the problem. A lot of people go into marriage looking for other things, right? Again, they're not looking to make much of Christ in their marriage. They're looking for happiness or, man, he's got a lot of money. Let me get with him. Or, man, some just want a family. If I can get this guy, we can have a family and have kids. Some people just want a wedding, Right? I've, multiple people I've met that just want a wedding. Some want what others have. They see it on Facebook. It looks happy, and they're like, I'll take that. Give me that, you know, and this guy can, can help me uh, with that, or this girl can help me with that. Some people are looking for the perfect companionship, or others just want uh, to have sex, or others are just getting married for all sorts of reasons, but it's not the reason that God has intended for us to get married. God didn't design marriage for any of those things. Primarily, it's designed to be God-centered not self-centered. It's about glorifying God. It's not about our happiness or convenience. It's about holiness and God's mission and glorifying God. This is what the roles that he's about to give us are all about. The uh, third thing 
that we see in a gospel-centered marriage is a godly wife, right? This is the role. Verse 22, it says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he's the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So again, God is pointing us to this picture of how the church and Christ relate to one another. So I always ask women this question. Why is it important and why is it beneficial and what does it lead to when a church submits themselves to Christ? The greatest thing a church can do is step away from control of the church and make the head of the church Christ. Because when we do that, God does incredible things with his church. Now, does that mean that sometimes I don't feel like, man, I wish I could just put my input into this church? Or, I, God, you, you don't understand. That's the church over there. But this church is in Vidalia. You don't know these people. I know these people. I think we should do it this way. No, that's not what submission looks like. Right? When we submit to Christ, the church flourishes. People's lives are changed. God does a tremendous work in there. So what does it look like for the church to submit to Christ? Well, we respect his authority. We respect who he is and what God has placed him over the church. We value him as the head of the church. We allow him to lead knowing that God is going to hold him accountable for that purpose. And obviously with Christ, it's a little bit easier to submit because you can trust him. He's always going to do the right thing. And most of our husbands, including myself, are going to make mistakes. And we have to understand that. But Paul uses a verb for women. And that verb is submission and respect. Right? They're interchangeable. So whichever one you like better. If you don't like submission, then use respect. But what God is asking you to do in marriage is to submit to your husband, to respect your husband. How do I define that? What does submission look like? Well, let me tell you what it's not first. Submission is not being a doormat and allowing your husband to walk over you, right? If he's doing that, that's wrong. Submission is not standing behind your husband like a little puppy dog and just following him around wherever he goes and watching him make mistake after mistake. That's not what submission is. You're a helper, right? Submission is not being a heckler where you just stand off to the side and be like, look, God, he thinks he can lead. Man, he's full of himself. Watch him screw this up. Ah, gotcha, right? That's not what it means, right? God has placed you as a helper to encourage, to bring insight, to collaborate with him so that he can become the man that God has called him to be. My best definition for submission and respect is just allowing him to lead, encouraging him to lead in the way that God has called him. Single women in the room, this is why it is so important, so important. Do not marry a man that you're not willing to submit your life to. Do not. Do not settle on this issue. If you do not trust his relationship with God, if you do not trust that he is going to lead you as he follows Christ, you need to break up with him right now. Fourthly, the godly husband. So not only does he talk to wives, but he talks to husbands. Verse 25 through 33, I don't have time to read it, but you see, he talks specifically to husbands, and he gives us a verb. That verb is not lead, but love, and not just love, but the strongest form of love, which is agape, which means unconditional love. It's the type of love that Christ showed for us when he went to the cross and died for us when we did not deserve it. 
Unconditional love means that it's not conditional on how she responds back to me or on how she does what I want her to do or if she doesn't do what I want her to do. Unconditional love means the source of that love is the love that Christ has for me. Now I'm flowing that love out of me to her even when she don't deserve it and when she does deserve it. It is Christ's love at work in me. How did Jesus love his church? Well, he died for his church. He served his church. He emptied himself to serve his church. He pursued us even when we didn't deserve it. He forgave us when we were unforgivable. He counted us more significant than himself. He lived with us in an understanding way. He led us in truth and grace. So husbands, that's what he's calling us to do as husbands in a biblical marriage. And he leaves us with the most sobering illustration in the entire Bible. And he says, I want you to think about this. And I think about this often. When we stand before God as a husband, we are going to get the opportunity to present our wife to God. The same way Christ is going to present the church to God the Father, we're going to present our wife. And when we present our wife to God, she's either going to be a better Christian because she was married to us or she's going to be a worse Christian because she was married to us. And if you're a husband in this room, that should do something in you. It should spark something in you to care about your, your spouse's relationship with God, to care about it more than you care about anything else in the world, to lead her and to know that you're going to present her. And then the fifth characteristic and the final and the way I want to close is the gospel-centered marriage understands that we need God's help. We need God's help. Listen, the things that God has asked us to do and be in marriage are impossible to do on our own. Like we need God's help. And God has designed marriage to reveal to us just how much we need his help. If the Christian life doesn't do it enough, he's now given us another one to push us towards him. And so here's how I want to end today. I want you to bow your head. And if you're in the room and you're married, and if your spouse is with you, I want you to just grab them by the hand. If you're not married, then you, you grab Jesus' hand. He's your spouse. And he's better. And I realize there's... There's so many different people in this room right now, so many different circumstances, some of them good, some of them bad. Some people have been married way longer than I've been married. And you probably feel like you know more than I do, and you probably do. But God has something for all of us today. And there's next steps all over this room. Some of the next steps in this room are salvation. You cannot be who God's called you to be if you don't have a relationship with God. You don't even need to think about leading a person or a family or a spouse without being reconciled to God. And so if you're in this room today and that's your next step, I pray you would take it. Take it. If you don't take it for yourself, take it for the sake of your family. And for some of us in this room, there's unforgiveness and bitterness towards our spouse. Maybe we've done it wrong our entire life. This is the first sermon we've ever heard on God's design for the marriage. And you'd say, Billy, we have screwed this thing up and there's no way we're coming back from this. Here's the good news of the gospel. God is a God of grace. And what that means is that he meets us exactly where we are. 
and he doesn't leave us there. He gives us next steps to take to get to his design. And he offers us joy and he offers us abundant life. And so I don't care where you are, I don't care how far you think you're gone or your marriage is gone. I'm telling you today, if you'll turn to Christ and you'll submit yourself to him and surrender to him and ask him to begin a work in your life and begin to take the steps he puts in front of you, God can restore and God can heal and God will. And we'd love to help you. So God, that's our prayer. Lord, I know there's people in this room right now that you're speaking to. Lord, I pray that they would respond to what you're asking them to do. And God, that you would begin a work in their life and in their marriage. God, that would do such a work that people around would look and they'd say, there's something different about them. They've been through so much, but God, they still love each other. God, they still serve each other. God, there has to be something different. How do they do this? And the answer is you. So Lord, would you fill us with your spirit? God, would you grow us into the people that you've called us to be? God, would you, would you just grow the families in our church? God, to walk in your design. God, to be an example for this community, for this world to see. God, so that you can get glory and so that you can draw people to yourself. And God, that you can start revival and it begins with us. So Lord, we love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here. We'll see you back next week.